Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for a little bit of Life Over Coffee. We believe that any two people can come together over coffee and resolve whatever conflict, personal challenges, relational difficulty, situational obstacles that are between them. Well, just a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Bible. We believe that we can do Life Over Coffee. By the way, if you haven't checked out our coffee shop, it is lifeovercoffee.com. That is the street address, and it is a sanctification center. We believe that God's Word has given us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. I have spent the last 25-plus years producing content that helps people to work through uh, relational difficulties and those situational challenges as well as personal problems. Our content is free. We give it away. We are a 501c3, and thank God we have underwriters that support our ministry, and it allows us to give our resources away freely to you. And so I want to share one of those resources with you. Actually, it was an infographic that I developed a number of years ago, and it was called 10 Ways to Kill Your Marriage. A gentleman wrote in to me, and he said, As I am writing this, I am writing in tears. And the reason is, is because I have done all 10 of these things in my marriage, and now that my marriage is over. And so he said, thank you for listing, listing these things. Now, there is a follow-up, 10 ways to bless your marriage. <clears throat> and he said, I wish I had known those as well. And so what I want to do for you over the next few minutes is I want to lay out those 10 things that will absolutely kill your marriage. But I'm not going to leave us in a negative space. I also will follow up in the back half is I want to share with you 10 things that will bless your marriage. And so this is what I hope that you will do. If you are married, that you will listen to all 10 of these things and then just evaluate, evaluate yourself. And if you are committing several of these things, well, any of them, honestly, I, I would just appeal to you to ask God to help you to stop doing these things in your relationship. Now, if you are dating, you're getting ready to get married, then this will be an excellent evaluation to, to see how well you're doing in the dating or courting stage. And please be aware uh, that these things can be the death knell to your marriage. And so I don't want you to do these things. I've often said I I wish I had the world's largest megaphone and, and I would communicate these things to, to whosoever will, anybody that would listen to me. I have been doing biblical counseling for more than a quarter of a century now, and and most of the people that I interact with are married because most people are married and once you get married you you begin to accumulate problems. You, you get a spouse for one and by the way the spouse that you married is is not perfect. The spouse that you married is just like you 
The spouse that you married came from the dinged and dented section of the grocery store. We get no perfect spouses. And unfortunately, we're all like this gentleman who wrote in, in tears, uh, that we make mistakes, that we don't have the information that we need, or maybe we have the information and we're just not responding to it. And so I trust that this will help you to evaluate and maybe have a conversation with your spouse If there has been too much water that has gone under the bridge, then I would encourage you to talk to somebody and say, hey, we we have problems in our marriage and, and we want to stick with it. We don't want to go down the divorce road, but we need help. And so find that competent friend that will come alongside you all and speak into your life and help to reconcile whatever is wrong with your marriage. And so this show here will be in two parts. It will be 10 ways to kill your marriage for self-evaluation. And then I want to give you 10 ways to bless your marriage. Now, if you want some additional resources, uh, I have written a book on marriage and it's called uh, Get Ready. It's right here. You can get it on Amazon. And I would encourage you to get, get ready. This book here, I wrote it for people who are serious about marriage. They're preparing for marriage. They're dating. They're courting. And they want a good pre-marriage manual. Uh, Then I've also wrote this for folks who are married and and they need to reevaluate and recalibrate their marriage. Well, this is for both Uh, demographics, those who are getting ready to get married and those who have already tied the knot. These are things that I have learned uh, through a quarter of a century of doing biblical counseling, mostly with married couples. And at the end of each chapter, I have call to action. So you can work through the questions. It will help you to reflect, evaluate, possibly make some changes. And so if you do want some additional resources, I would encourage you to get this book get ready. And again, for those of you who do premarital counseling, this will be an excellent tool for the for that young couple or the couple that's planning on tying the knot. Because again, there are no perfect marriages and there are no perfect people who get married. And by the way, we marry strangers. You really can't know who you are marrying until you do tie that knot. And then you become two sinners in a box. You could become two sinners in a a small confined space. And the thing about dating is, is that you can reboot. I mean, every day you can have a a new start because your boyfriend, your girlfriend goes that way, you go that way, and then you get together again. And so there's a rebooting every day. But when you get married, there is no rebooting. It is one long, continuous life together in proximity to each other is two sinners in a box. And we have to have a plan. We have to have a sin plan, a way of working through what is wrong with us. Or we will commit the very mistakes that I have listed here. And so let me get into these 10 ways to kill your marriage. And I hope none of them identify you. But if they do, then I will follow up with 10 ways to bless your marriage as well. Now, this is in no particular order. And also, it's not an exhaustive list. It's just things that I have learned Uh, from interacting with a lot of folks. And I may or may not have committed these very things in my marriage as well. Number one, always have the last word. 
If you always have, if you always have to have the last word, then there is something wrong with you. Now, typically, a person who has to have the last word struggles with the fear of man. The fear of man, I'm talking about Proverbs 29, 25. It says, the fear of man uh, will leave you in a snare, but he who trusts the Lord will be safe. And so a person who struggles with the fear of man, uh, it'll always lead to being captured in a snare. But a person who is trusting the Lord will be safe. And typically people who struggle with fear of man, there are many symptoms to fear of man. But one of those is they just can't let it go. They have to have the last word. They have to finish on top. They can't finish below because a person who struggles with fear of man always has to come across as strong and powerful and always has to have the last word. By the way, if you go to lifeovercoffee.com, I have a one-hour webinar on how to overcome the fear of man. I've also developed a complete course on overcoming the fear of man, which the culture would call peer pressure or codependency. Those are cultural synonyms for the biblical language of fear of man. And so if you're a person in a marriage and you just have to have the last word and it doesn't matter what your spouse says, you're going to come back at them. Well, then you have a significant issue and you're going to wear them down and eventually they will just, they will just give up. But you want to address what is motivating you to want to manipulate and dominate a person that way. And part of that answer is a person that struggles with the fear of man. Now, that is not an exhaustive answer to why a person will do this, but it is something that you need to address. Ten ways to kill your marriage. Number one, always have the last word. Number two is to get them with a cheap shot, to hit them with a, a cheap shot. Now, this is unfortunate. This is just a heart of anger that is operating in a very unkind and slicing word. It is manipulative. And by the way, that a person will do this, that will uh, hit them with a cheap shot, is kind of tied into having to have the last word. This is a person who is elevated. They are devaluing the person. You, you only hit someone with a cheap shot, get them with a cheap shot, point number two here. You would only do that to a person that you devalue. You don't value them. In, in, in Philippians 2, Paul talked about count others more significant than you. And so in a relationship, we see other people as more significant. It's the royal law. Love God and love others more than ourselves. Uh, count others more significant than ourselves. But when a person hits them with a cheap shot, they are looking down on them and they are devaluing them. And so there is something that is profoundly wrong with the person who does this. Now, James would say in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and, and what causes conflict? He, he's saying, why do you get angry? Why do you have these dust up, these arguments, this conflict, these fights? And he says, is it not this? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You're hitting them with a cheap shot. And so James is saying that the reason that a person will do this is because they, are, they have a war within. 
They have this internal soul noise. They're so complicated inside, and they're frustrated, and it works out in anger. And many times in our relationships, we will just uh, we'll use our words as weapons as these soldiers march off our tongues to, to do that, those dastardly deeds. Paul said in Ephesians 4.29 that we should use our words to build up the other person, but when we get them with a, a cheap shot, we're not building them up. We're actually tearing them down. And he said in Ephesians 4.29 that that is corrupting speech, and we do not want to do that. And so 10 ways to kill your marriage. Number one, well, always have the last word. <laughs> That'll do it. Number two, get them with a a cheap shot. Number three, uh, twist, twist your, use your words to tie them up. Twist them up and tie them up with your, your words. Now, this is a person that typically uh, enters into a communication conflict like it's a competitive event. Uh, men are very good at this. Women can do this as well. Uh, we can twist them up by the words that we use. Sometimes you may feel like you're married to a prosecuting attorney. Now, this person needs to have self-awareness. They need to recognize what they do, but unfortunately, they probably do recognize what they're doing. They're trying to win. It's about winning, not about reconciliation. It's a competitive event. And so you, you take what they say, and you're really not listening you're not listening in a reconciling way or a restive, restorative way. You're listening in a way so that you could twist them up with your words and tie them in knots because you're competing against them, and it's about winning. And when winning the argument is more important than reconciling the relationship, then you're in a very bad place. Number four, say it's not my job. Now, the first three things that I've mentioned is about communication, and there's more to be said about communication, but number four is, is saying, well, it, it's not my job. And what I mean by that is that uh, we don't step into the full responsibility of being a marriage partner. For example, a husband can come home and think that his job is nine to five, and because his job is nine to five, he can come home and relax and surf the net, watch the game, chill, do whatever it is he wants to do, and he's really off for the day. I mean, I'm off from work, and he has a, a very narrow understanding of what work means. It is a vocation-providing kind of worldview, but provision financially, but that's not provision necessarily spiritually. It's not providing emotionally. It's not providing relationally. And so he checks out when he comes home because he's already done his day. Uh, one of the benefits of, of what has happened in, uh, during the COVID season is that many men came home. Uh, and then they saw what their wives are, have been doing, and some of them have realized that, oh, my wife never has a day off. Uh, her job is 24-7. Even when we go on vacation, she's preparing and planning uh, to go on the vacation. And then during the vacation, she's still doing her job. I realized this in 2003. I started sheltering in place in 2003. 
I wanted to get ahead of the, get ahead of the curve, and and so I came home, and I've been working out of the home since 2003, and that's when our children were just toddlers and just running around or crawling around, actually. And I realized at that moment, it was just like an epiphany that, wow, my wife never gets any time off. I didn't know what she did during the day, honestly. But then when I came home and saw what she did during the day, it's like, this is a 24-7 job. I remember one time that uh, I couldn't find her. She had just like disappeared (laughs) in thin air. And after about 45 minutes or so, I needed to ask her something, but I didn't know where she was. And finally, I found her in the restroom. And then I realized what was going on. I said, baby, I said, are you hiding? She said, yes, I am hiding. She was hiding from the children. And part of, I mean, we laugh about it and it was humorous, but it also broke my heart to realize that, wow, this is a heavy responsibility rearing these kids up and there, there is no break from it. And that's when God began to work in my heart. And it's like, you know, you have a nine to five job, but that is not all of your job. And so dads need to be proactive uh, when they come home. They need to be intentional. God is an intentional God. He doesn't take time off uh, after he finishes nine to five. And so he's always on the job, helping us, guiding us, leading us, maturing us. And men need to do that as well. Now, women can do that also. And so what both the husband and wife need to realize is that this this is a participation sport in marriage, and we want to make sure that we're serving each other and we're serving each other well. Jesus said in 1045 of Mark that I didn't come here to be served, but I came here to serve, and that is the attitude that we want to carry in our marriages. And so we might not ever say, it's not my job, but we want to make sure that we're not taking a passive approach to our covenant, that we are fully engaged and we're doing whatever's necessary to do uh, because we want to bless each other and count each other more significant. Number four, say, it's not my job. Number five, never be wrong. Well, <laughs> if you, the only way that you could, well, there's two ways you can never be wrong. One, you can be Jesus. Okay, well, you're not him. And two, you can lie. <laughs> Uh, lie, it's one way you can lie is to pretend. You can pretend that you never never be wrong. Now, a person who can't ever be wrong, uh, this is an individual that is, that is full of pride. They lack humility, and they don't have the ability. They, they don't have the grace. They, they are unwilling. They are being stubborn, or it could be that they have been habituated in a never-be-wrong mindset for so long that they have hardened their conscience. You see, you can keep resisting God over and over again, and each time we resist God, we we layer our consciences, and then our consciences are malleable, and so we can go from a sensitive conscience that is truly in line with God's Word. When your conscience and God's Word are, are singing the same song, that they're perfectly in, in tune with each other, that is a conscience that uh, can really that, that you can listen to and that's a conscience that is sensitive to what God's word says. 
But each time that we ignore God's truth or we exchange the truth of God for a lie, well, guess what? We're going to lay this this thin layer down over our conscience, and it can become dull and even even hard. And the person that won't admit wrong, never say wrong, that's a person that is dulling and hardening their conscience. By the way, I have a free downloadable book, a digital book at lifeovercoffee.com, and you can have it. They're truly no strings. There's no catch whatsoever. I want you to have it. I'm not selling you anything. And it's called exchange the truth. Exchange the truth for a lie. And I walk through this process of a person who hardens their conscience. And I would love for you to get that free digital download. It's right in our store. Just download it. You can share it with 1,000 of your closest friends. You can give the link to anyone. Say, hey, you want a free book? Uh, get this one. It's, it's called Exchange the Truth for a Lie. It's such a big issue of how we uh, uh, mold and shape our consciences that we don't even realize it with these, these little lies that we can tell or just ignoring God's truth. But anytime we make that little exchange, we're going to put this layer down over our conscience. And if we're not careful... We're going to be like going to sleep in a boat, and, and, and after a while we wake up and we're so far from the shore that we can't see the shoreline any longer. I'm talking about 10 ways to kill your marriage. I've gone through the first five. Always have the last word. Get them with a cheap shot. Twist them up with their wor words. Number four, say it's not my job. Number five, never be wrong. Number six, withhold encouragement. In Romans 2.4, Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, don't you know that it's the kindness and patience and forbearance of God uh, that led to our repentance? The kindness of God leads to repentance. Well, how did that happen? Well, we heard about a man who was dying on a tree, and, and we began to understand that, uh, that, uh, that he died for our sins, that, that he took our sin. He atoned for our sins. He was our propitiation, that, that he turned back the wrath of God, and, and, and God bore down his wrath on him, and he was the perfect sacrifice, and we believe in him, and, and we are born again or regenerated, generated a second time. And we realize, wow, that is the kindness of God. And when we hear that we can be forgiven of all of our sins, it's like, are you kidding me? No, you can. That is the kindness of God. And it's the kindness of God that led to repentance. You can motivate someone to change by never being wrong saying it's not my job, twisting them up with your words, get them with a cheap shot, always have the last word. Oh, you can motivate them to change, but it's not going to be the change that you want. Uh, they will begin to resist you and to rebel against you and to create distance from you. And then pockets of silence will start growing where they're just not going to communicate with you anymore. Point number six is withhold encouragement. When Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, and so if you want someone to change, it would be far better to motivate them by grace and by kindness and patience and forbearance. 
Don't withhold encouragement. Encouragement will motivate them to change in the right way. Condemnation will motivate them to change in all the wrong ways. God motivated us to change. When Paul asked that rhetorical, don't you know the kindness of God leads to repentance? You want someone to change? Try kindness. Try encouragement. And so withhold encouragement, point number six of ten ways to kill your marriage. Number seven, nag your spouse to death. Well, most times we attribute that to a wife, but again, it doesn't matter. This is not about male and female. It's about who, whoever owns this, whoever is doing this needs to stop doing this. Uh, similar to withholding encouragement, well, another way is just to nag them to death. Just keep on, keep on communicating in an unwholesome way. Going back to Ephesians 4.29, this is what Paul was saying, that corrupting speech, it's like pouring acid on metal, and it just deteriorates the metal. And that's what this constant drip of nagging speech will do to any spouse. And, and eventually it will create that distance, and, and they will get quieter and quieter, and communication will be, will be lost, and you'll be heading in most definitely the wrong direction. Number eight, 10 ways to kill your marriage. Always be oversensitive. Some people are just too sensitive. They haven't really been, they haven't stepped into the freedom that the gospel offers. Our greatest problem in life has been resolved at the cross of Christ. There is no greater problem than, than our sin against the ultimate offended power, Jehovah, God Almighty. We have sinned against him, and he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We have been set free, as Paul would say in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. And if we are free because of our greatest problem in life has been resolved at the cross of Christ, then we need to step in that freedom. We shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. We shouldn't be so sensitive where we take everything so personal. It's not about us any longer. God has released us from this type of bondage, and we need to grow up as newborn babes and not be so sensitive. And if you are oversensitive, well, that does speak to an internal problem that you have. And if you have an oversensitive spouse, you need to realize this that you need to come alongside them and to restore them. They are caught. They are habituated in, in oversensitivity. And Paul said in Galatians 6.1 that you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself so you do not send your brains out. That's a paraphrase from Romans chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse number 1. But the person who is oversensitive, again, it will create a deteriorating effect on your marriage. Number nine of ten ways to kill your marriage is to overcommit, to be tired all the time. 
There's an excellent book that our family read a couple of years ago. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Now, there are aspects of that. It was by a pastor in Portland, and as you might imagine from a pastor in Portland, he's probably going to be a little bit woke. And so there are some woke strands at the end of the book that I really don't care anything about. But the idea, some of the principles that he puts forth in this book are, are worthy for our consideration because we live in a frenetic, fast-paced culture, and we have gotten ourselves caught up in it, and we don't know about the ruthless elimination of hurry. We don't know how to decommit and slow down and, and pace ourselves. Jesus Christ only had one thing on his to-do list. Now, it was big, granted, save the world, but as you read the Gospels, he just was not a fast-paced individual. He was well-paced. He lived an ordered life. He was organized, but he wasn't so structured that he was not spontaneous, and so he lived in both of those constructs. There was structure and order to his life, but he also was very pneumatic. He walked in the Spirit. He was spontaneous, and so he could interact with people as they came upon him, but he did not overcommit. He spent time praying. He, he took his time. He had his intimate uh, relationships that he spent more time with. He learned the value of the word no. He understood that no is a complete sentence. But if we overcommit and we find ourselves living frenetically, then it's going to start tearing away at the fabric of our covenant. It will start tearing away at that one flesh union. Ten ways to kill your marriage. And then the last one is bring up past wrongs. Let me roll through these again. Always have the last word. Get them with a cheap shot. Twist them up with their words. Say it's not my job. Number five, never be wrong. Withhold encouragement. Nag your spouse to death. Always be oversensitive. Number nine, overcommit. Be tired. And then number 10, bring up past wrongs. If you, It's okay to bring up past wrongs if people have repented of those wrongs. But if you bring up past wrongs in a punitive way, well, then all you're doing is just hurting your spouse. You are pummeling them with your words by reminding them of the things that they have done wrong, which means that this couple does not know how to repent. You should talk about past wrongs, but only after those wrongs have been forgiven. We cannot forgive and forget because our minds don't work that way. Of course, we remember. And again, you want to remember. For example, if I sin against my wife and we walk out a repentance process and God forgives me and she forgives me, well, then we want to talk about what I did wrong so that I can learn from it because there's more to the repentance process than just forgiveness. And so after she forgives me, I want to talk about what I did wrong, but it won't be talked about in a punitive way because she has forgiven me, praise God. And so therefore we can talk about it because Paul says to put off that behavior and to renew the spirit of your mind and put on Christ. But I will not be able to put off and renew my mind and put on if I'm not having a discussion with my accountability partner who happens to be my wife. And so it's okay to bring up past wrongs as long as those past wrongs are under the blood of Christ. 
But if you haven't successfully repented of past wrongs and then you bring them up, then you're being mean, you're being punitive, and you will kill your marriage. And so as I said at the onset, a gentleman wrote in and he said, Rick, I have done all 10 of these things. And he wrote in in tears because he ended up in divorce. And so what I want to do now is I want to talk about 10 ways to bless your marriage. I don't want to lead us into the, the depths of darkness with, with no light at all. I, I want us to now to walk in the light, and I want to lay out 10 ways that we can uh, bless our marriages. And again, if, if you're doing any of the 10 things that I've mentioned, or maybe uh, you're adding other things that this has jogged your memory, it's like, well, I don't do any of these 10, but I do think of some things that I, I do uh, do in our marriage, and so I want to I want to repent of those. Then please help yourself and, and repent. Begin by talking to God and then talk to your spouse and say, hey, baby, uh, I was watching this show about 10 ways to kill your marriage, and praise God, I don't do any of those 10 things. But the Spirit of God brought up five other things that I do, and so I want to talk about this, and I want to work through them. I want to learn how to change. Now, I have a book that I've written. It's called uh, Actually Change Me, the Ultimate Life Change Handbook. I had a lady write in a number of years ago, and she said, Rick, if you were to walk someone through the change process, what would you tell them? And so I put together about 30 two or so chapters, I can't remember, uh, in this book. By the way, this book has a lot of graphics in it as well. And so uh, I put it together in a sequential order so that, like, for example, here's here's a graphic here, and you'll see a lot of graphics throughout this book. You'll also see uh, call to actions at the end of each chapter. And so I put this book together called Change Me. It is in a sequence of how to walk through a transformation process. And this would be an excellent study for you uh, and your spouse or you and a friend. I highly encourage that. You can find Get Ready, the book that I talked about earlier, and then, of course, Change Me. They're on Amazon. Uh, just look for Rick Thomas and then those two titles, and you can order the books. And as you know, they will ship it right to your door. Uh, but you can get it and work through it. And the way that I write, I don't write a book just to read and then put it on the shelf. The books are actually manuals. Uh, they're actually workbooks. And in all of the books, you could actually dip in to any chapter. You don't even have to read it from cover to cover. You could just dip in. I would recommend that you read from cover to cover and then pull it back off the shelf and look for specific chapters on repentance or fear of man or communication, whatever it may be, how to make a decision. This is like the first chapter in this book, Get Ready. And then you can study these specific chapters. But as you go through this list of 10 ways to kill your marriage, I would encourage you to get this supplemental material. Go to lifeovercoffee.com and, and get the, the digital free download. Uh, exchange the truth of God for a lie. I also have another download called uh, Communication, Redeeming Talk Trouble, and that's free to you. And, and again, I would love for you to have that little book, digital, download it. You can print it off into a PDF and mark it up and uh, three-ring binder it and, and, and use it as a study guide uh, with your spouse or with a friend. 
a ladies group, men's group, it doesn't matter. But please use these resources because they are free to you. And so get communication, redeeming talk trouble, get exchange of truth for a lie. Those are free. And then if you want to order uh, Get Ready or Change Me, those are bigger books. You can order those from Amazon. And I would just encourage you to do that, to get all this help that you can. All right, so let's work through 10 ways to bless your marriage uh, because we want to get out of this dark tunnel that I've led you down. And so in no particular order, and again, this is not an exhaustive list either. Number one, listen more, speak less. Now, this is right out of James's playbook. Uh, be quick to listen and slow to speak. I'm sure you have heard that. Now, when I talk about listening, not, well, you know, active listening, you know, people would say that. That sounds really good. You modify it that way. Active listening. Yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, that, that, that means pay attention. Uh, that means put your phone down. That means look, at, look them in the eye. But our listening has to be more than that. It has to be at least at two levels. And what I mean by two-level listening is that you want to hear the words that are coming out of their mouths, but you know what Jesus said in Luke 6.45, that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And so as these words come out of their mouths, you know those words found their genesis in the heart, and so you have to listen at both levels. And so when a spouse, for example, is, is, is saying, you know, I didn't like the way that you said that, or that really bothered me. Well, then you you hear the words, but you understand that the heart is communicating a lot of hurt. And so you want to be sympathetic. You won't want to hear, I mean, you don't want to hear it like, oh, wow, I just feel so condemned and, and I feel bad about myself. You know, that's making it all about you. No, you want to listen. No, this is what the person has said. And, and, and obviously their heart is hurting because the heart generated those words and wow, I got some work to do. And, and perhaps when they tell you that, maybe maybe they tell you that imperfectly. Well, here, here's a tip for you. Did you know that, that fallen people like you and me will never be able to communicate uh, what is going on in our hearts perfectly? Uh, th there will always be something wrong with how we say it when we communicate. Uh, how you hurt me. And we need to understand that because what, what will happen is that I could be 90% correct in, in what I'm saying and 10% wrong because I'm a fallen person. And the person who's listening, they will only hear the 10%. Well, no, no, you that's not exactly right. Now we're into competitive communication, which was uh, I, I mentioned earlier in, in my top 10 of how to kill a marriage where we twist them up with their words. And so we want to address the log in our eye and say, okay, uh, maybe they didn't communicate that properly or correctly, but I see truth in what they're saying because I'm looking for the truth. We can deal with the inaccuracy of how they laid it out before you later, but it's really more about I want to listen to what they're saying, and I'll just set aside if they're saying it in a way that I don't agree with because I want to focus on that this person is truly 
hurt. And so 10 ways to bless your marriage, listen more, speak less. And I'm talking about two-level listening, not just hearing the words that they're saying, but understand that those words are generated in the heart. Number two, uplift your spouse with your words. Now, this is the exact opposite of what I've been saying earlier about killing your marriage. And again, this goes back to what Paul was saying in 429 of Ephesians, that we want to build up. Maybe you can look at it like a, a, a rule of thumb. Like for every correction that I give you, I want to give you 10 words of encouragement. Now, don't want to be legalistic about it, but you understand the philosophy behind it. And maybe you could ask this question of your spouse. Uh, Honey, what do you hear more from me when I talk to you and about you? Do, do you sense and hear my encouragement more, or do you sense and hear my condemnation and my critique more? It would be good to have that evaluation. What do you hear more uh, that comes from me about you? Am I more of an encourager or a discourager? Now, if you want to be a leader, then this is a leadership opportunity, and that is an excellent question to ask. By the way, the things that I'm sharing with you, I have had these discussions with my wife, and there was a time where I was not uplifting her uh, with my words. I was more of the prosecuting attorney type, and that is not edifying or building up at all. And so listen more, speak less. Number two, uplift your spouse with your words. Number three, give your spouse room to fail. Remember, we came from the dinged and dented section of the grocery store. There's no such thing as a perfect spouse. All of us are fallen. There's no such thing as sinless perfection in this life. Christ was, we are not, we never shall be until we are ultimately glorified in eternity. Therefore, we are going to make mistakes. We are going to fall down. We are going to skin our knees. We are going to sin against each other. People need room to wobble. We don't want to nickel and dime everyone to death. Perhaps one of the ways that you can think about this is consider, is this person in a pattern of sin or is it episodic sinning? A lot of episodic sinning you can just overlook, let it go. We don't have to nail down everything. Uh, and so maybe it's something that you would just want to overlook because it is an episode, we will let it pass. Now, it could be a significant episode, and if it is, maybe you need to deal with it. But we want to be wise. We want to pick our battles, and everything should, should not be a battle with imperfect people. And so point number three, give your spouse room to fail. Number four, be a servant in your home. Now, Serving should be a competitive event. Paul said in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. I like that language, outdo one another. Now, he says outdo one another in showing honor. What about if we just outdo one another in serving? You could think of it this way. Never let your spouse outserve you. And so make serving a competitive event. It would be Christ-like. Now, don't be annoying by it, uh, but understand the gist of what I'm saying is that 
you want to be a servant. You want to be like Christ. He was the ultimate servant. As I mentioned in 1045 of Mark earlier, I did not come here to be served. I came here to serve. When the Pharisees were talking to Jesus in Matthew 22, they asked him, well, what is the greatest law? Well, Jesus took over 600 laws from the Old Testament, and he brought them down to four words. And by the way, two of the words are the same. The four words are love God, love others. Love God, love others. That right there is the bumper sticker for life. That is the secret to life. I told our children uh, many years ago when they were younger that if you want to be successful, there's only four words that you have to know. And the good news is two of the words are the same. Love God and love others. Count others more significant than yourselves. I did not come here to be served, but I came here to serve. I was talking about... Uh, husbands, you know, saying, well, it's not my job. I've done my nine to five. I've done my duty. I'm at home. I'm not here to serve. I'm here to be served. A husband should step in the door after a long day of work and say, hello, everyone. I'm not, I didn't come home to be served. I came home to serve. The word servant is a, it's like a synonym for Jesus. It's like a synonym for Christ's likeness. And so be a servant in your home. Don't walk past that thing that needs to be done. Don't succumb to the bystander effect. The bystander effect is when everybody sees what needs to be done and everyone assumes that someone will do it, thus nobody does it. And so the proactive Christ-like servant sees what needs to be done, does not succumb to the bystander effect, but actually steps into it and and seizes the opportunity because I want to be Christ-like, and so I'm going to be a servant in our home. By the way, that can become infectious, and that's the kind of contagion that you want in your home. Ten ways to bless your marriage. Number one, listen more, speak less. Number two, uplift your spouse with your words. Number three, give your spouse room to fail. Number four, be a servant in your home. And number five, be quick to admit wrongs. You see the, the antithetical-ness of this list because in the prior list about killing your marriage is never admit wrong. Well, here you are a quick repenter, a quick confession person. You want a confessional home, meaning that we are confessing our sins and that we are quick to do it and to admit our wrongs. By the way, if you truly understand the gospel, that our greatest problem in life has been resolved at the cross, then we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to hide. We have nothing to protect. We will be quick to admit our wrongs because, well, there is nothing to fear. For freedom, Christ has set us free. If our consciences are dull, as I was saying earlier, and we have been layering our conscience, our malleable conscience, from dull to hard. You remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.2, that their conscience is seared with a hot iron. We don't want to be that person where you take the branding iron, put it on the cow's rump, and sear it, where now there is no sensitivity whatsoever. Well, the way that you maintain a sensitive conscience, a a conscience that is right in line with God's Word, well, you are quick 
to admit your wrongs, number five. Number six is export peace to your home. Christians are in the import-export business, and so what we do is we, we take in Christ-likeness. We learn from God's Word what it means to be Christ, and we export that to the world. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, <clears throat> talked about going and making disciples. That's the export business that we are in, but we can only export what we have imported. And so he says, I mean, this is the Great Commission, go and teach all that I have taught you. Well, if we have not learned, if we have not taken in the in import part, then what we're going to export will not be Christ-likeness. And so export, and I'm speaking specifically of peace right here in number six. D does your home, does it have, is there shalom in your home? Does your home have peace? Is peace wafting through your home? A lot of homes that you go into, it's really just noisy and it's chaotic and, and there's confusion and there's fracturedness. And the reason that that is what is in the home is because that's what has been exported to the home. Well, how was it exported? Well, we are the, in the, we are in the import-export business. And so we have been importing the wrong thing. And so the person that is not exporting peace, they don't have peace. In fact, what they have is excessive soul noise. There's a war within. There is churning going on in the in, on the inside. And the shalom that, that Christ offers uh, to his children is not their possession. I'm not saying they're not Christians, but they haven't learned to appropriate the grace of God in their lives to the degree to where now they can export peace. You probably have had this experience hanging around certain people. When you hang around them, they just make you nervous. You're just not comfortable around them. That's what they are exporting to you. It's like they're not comfortable, and now I'm not comfortable, and it's a little bit awkward. They're not exporting peace because they do not possess peace. And so the evaluation that we want to make is that, is there shalom in this home? And you'll find that some people are, are tense uh, because there hasn't been an exportation of shalom. You'll find people retreating uh, to their rooms or retreating to their devices as an escape mechanism because they're looking for peace. They're looking for rest. They're looking for a respite to get away because the home is so chaotic. And so we want to export peace, but we can only export what we possess. And if we're not exporting peace, then, well, it is a commentary on what is going on inside us. Number seven, uh, 10 ways to bless your marriage, forgive past wrongs. And that's exactly what we want to do. We want to forgive. We want to kill it dead. As I was saying earlier, that once it is killed dead, then we can talk about it and then if we talk about it in a non-punitive way, we can actually work through it. And that is a beautiful thing. We want to be not only having a confessional home, but what flows out of the confession of sin is the forgiveness of sin. And so there is a redemptive stacking here in our home. And if we are confessing our sins, we are quick, 
quick to own our wrongs and to admit them to God and whomever else we have offended. And then we seek forgiveness from God and whomever else we have offended. And then there is reconciliation. And now we can start exporting peace to one another because that soul noise has been killed because we have been forgiven by God and forgiven by others. And then we work through Uh, not being repeat offenders. And that's the beauty of being able to talk about the things that we do wrong once it has been successfully killed dead, meaning forgiveness, that the cross of Christ is, is powerful enough to forgive any sins that we commit. Number seven, forgive past wrongs. Number eight, become known as an encourager. What would you like for them to, to put on your uh, tombstone? Maybe it's this. Or they're standing around the day you passed away and said, wow, he was really an encourager. Uh, you, you probably have, have thought about this, you know, when you're called to the principal's office <laughs> uh, in elementary school. Or I imagine most of you were never called to the principal's office, so I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience. Excuse me. Is that when you're called to the principal's office, it's like, wow, I'm going to be encouraged today. I know what I am going to get. Well, no, that's not exactly what happened when uh, I was called to Mr. McAfee's office in the seventh grade. Actually, he was uh, standing there, and there was a wooden paddle uh, in proximity. And I'm not saying that that is a bad thing, though I think wooden paddles are extinct now. And that is sad, but that's another commentary. But I knew that when I was called to the principal's office, I knew what I was going to get, and he was not going to encourage me. He was going to motivate me, but he was not going to encourage me. What are you known as? Uh, and, and again, it goes back to that uh, diagnostic question that I asked earlier. Would you go to your spouse this evening and say, honey, uh, what is it more that you receive from me? My, my discouragement and my critique or you feel encouraged and edified and built up. You want to be known as an encourager. And so use the 10 to 1 ratio. Uh, look for ways to encourage the members in your house 10 times. It was what you want to do. I mean, you know you're going to have to correct them. Uh, you, you know that they're going to do things wrong. I mean, we're professionals. Uh, we sin easily. It just comes naturally. We're fallen people. And if you know that people are going to wobble around uh, from time to time episodically, uh, if that's going to happen and you have to correct them, then what you want to do is become busy encouraging them. You're putting that money in the bank because you know you're going to have to make a withdrawal. Imagine if, if a person never encourages and then you do something wrong and then they come along and discourage you. That's called being overdrawn. Uh, you get penalized for that, and that just causes all kinds of problems. And so you can alleviate that problem by becoming an encourager. Number nine, continuously assess your log First, talking about the log, the plank, the timber in your eye, the Home Depot truck that you hear that beeping sound. It is backing up and it's got a load of lumber that is it fits right in your eye. You never want to forget or or invert the log and the speck. Paul talked about it this way in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said that 
that I am the biggest sinner in the room. Now, he said that at the end of his life. I mean, at the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy, and he's saying that I am the foremost sinner, the chief of sinner. I'm the biggest sinner in the room. As he looked at the room, it's like, wow, I got the, I got the log in my eye, and everything else is speck fishing. If we keep that perspective, then when we address the speck in other people's lives, we will do it with humility, with a, with a heart of contrition and brokenness, recognizing that what I did to Christ is far worse than anything that anything anybody has ever done to me. And so the sin against the offended power, God Almighty, the sin against Christ is far greater than anything that will ever happen to me. And if you have that cross-leveling attitude, uh, then when you see people or interact with people who hurt your feelings, who do something wrong, sin against you, make a mistake, well, if the log is in your eye, you will address what they do wrong uh, with grace and humility. I'm not minimizing what they have done wrong, not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with my life, I, I've had two brothers that were murdered uh, 10 years apart in 97 and, and 1987. And uh, the, the only way or the primary way that I could work through that is by understanding that what I did to Christ is far greater than what these murderers did to my uh, first and second brother, my oldest brothers. And, and that has a way of not letting them off the hook, uh, not releasing them from any kind of judgment or consequences for what they've done. No, it's not some kind of gushy love, uh, but it is an attitude that starts with my own heart because if I don't address my heart first in our marriage, your marriage, if you don't address your heart first, recognizing that you are the biggest sinner in the room, you killed Christ, then the way, if you get that wrong, then you have the speck, they have the log, well, then... You, it's going to create havoc and further division in your relationship. Number nine, continue, continually assess your log first. And then number 10, make the marriage calendar a priority. Uh, we have concentric circles in our relationships. Your most intimate relationship is between you and God Almighty. This is the one place where you can say, I am number one. Uh, and you are. Uh, you have to take care of yourself first, spiritually, also physically. It is an infrastructure issue that you take care of yourself. And then as you work out in these relationships, if you are spiritually fit, physically fit, you're taking care of body and soul, then you're able to take care and serve others well. And so you're number one, but then the next circle of intimacy relationship, number one is between you and God, and then number two is between you, God, and your spouse. And so you have to make your marriage calendar a priority. And, and so there's no is a complete sentence, and sometimes you're just going to have to say no. All right, these are 10 ways to kill your marriage. I won't repeat those. 10 ways to bless your marriage. This is where we want to land the plane. This is what we want to implement. Number one, listen more, speak less. Two, uplift your spouse with your words. Three, give your spouse room to fail. Number four, be a servant in your home. Number five, be quick to admit your wrongs. Number six, export peace to your spouse. Number seven, forgive past wrongs. 
Become known as an encourager, number eight. Number nine, continually assess your log first. And then number 10, make the marriage calendar a priority. Here's number 11. This is a bonus. I'll just sum up everything this way. Be Jesus to your spouse. I am Rick Thomas. This is Life Over Coffee. Go to lifeovercoffee.com. We have thousands of free resources in a read, watch, listen format. If you want to read, read into your heart's content. All kinds of things on personal, relational issues, addiction, anger, forgiveness, grief. It doesn't matter. I've written on it. If you want to listen, I have over 1,500 podcasts. They're free. If you want to watch, well, we have videos too, and you can do that. On Rumble, go to Life Over Coffee and subscribe uh, to our Rumble channel, Life Over Coffee. Have hundreds upon hundreds of videos there from 30-second reels to, to 30 and 40-minute uh, videos, and you're welcome to take advantage of those. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.